Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we've been talking about so far uh, today, quite a bit, we're starting a new series on the book of Judges today. And as I mentioned before, Judges is, is really one of the most kind of interesting, maybe the most exciting books in the Bible. It's just full of these suspenseful stories about these, these powerful figures and their daring exploits. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at, at four of these Judges. Um, and that's pretty cool. But the book of Judges also happens to be just absolutely full of, of sin, of violence and bloodshed, and just utter chaos. But God is, is never gratuitous unnecessarily, and, and all of this, this sin and, and violence and chaos is meant to teach us. In fact, I would suggest that the book of Judges is one of the most relevant books in all of the Bible for our present day and age. And so today we're going to be looking at Ehud, the left-handed assassin. Uh, But before we do that, there are a few things that we need to know about the book of Judges as a whole to kind of set the stage for these four accounts we're going to be looking at together. So the the events narrated in the book of Judges take place right after the death of Joshua. Um, As you might recall, God has, has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt through his servant Moses. They've wandered in the desert for 40 years. And then Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and they take the place over. And from that point on, everything's supposed to go pretty smoothly as as they drive out the rest of the idol worshipers in the land. But when Joshua dies, Israel very quickly loses sight of God's promise for them and God's command to them, even losing sight of God himself. So as we heard earlier from Judges 2, they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. They provoked Yahweh to anger. In the first two chapters of Judges, there are 10 mentions of how Israel did not follow God's command to drive out the idol worshipers in the land. Seven times the book of Judges says that Israel did evil in Yahweh's eyes, forgetting him and worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroth, these pagan gods that the people in the land had worshipped before them. As a result of this, Israel finds themselves decaying into this state of social and moral and especially spiritual chaos. And kind of the best way to summarize all of this is found a few times, actually, at the end of the book of Judges, and it's also the very last verse in the book as a whole. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if that does not describe our world today, I don't know what does. We live in a nation where it is a cherished value for everyone to do what is right in his own eyes. How many times have you heard someone say, don't judge me? Or even like these brilliant professors say, you know what, what's right or wrong for me is not necessarily what's, what's right or wrong for you and vice versa. How many times have, have we seen our society, sometimes even the church play along with it, 
as we, we kind of rewrite the rules and, and do things our own way and, and exchange the truth of God for a lie? How many times have we as individual followers of Jesus been far too comfortable assimilating to our environment, allowing the world around us to, to dictate to us our, our tastes or our behaviors or even our worldview and identity? This is where Israel found themselves in the time period of the Judges. And in our Old Testament reading from Judges 2, we got a pretty good overview of the book as a whole. There we saw that Israel abandoned God, and so he gave them into the hand of their enemies. But even then, God did not withhold his mercy, and he sent judges to rescue Israel. So as people throughout the years have, have read the book of Judges, they've noticed um, this, this pattern, this, this cycle that is present in the book. In fact, it's almost impossible to miss. Though perhaps uh, more than a cycle, it's better described as, as kind of a downward spiral. And the best way to remember this downward spiral is, is with the letters A, B, C, and D. So you'll see this in your sermon outline if you have that and want to fill it in. Uh, first, Israel would abandon God. They would leave behind Yahweh, the, the one true God, and, and worship idols. Then, as a result, they were beaten down. They were, they were handed over to their surrounding enemies, and they were horribly oppressed. As we talked about at the beginning of our service, this would lead them to cry out to God for rescue. And God would respond by delivering them, by sending them a Savior. Again and again, in the book of Judges, we see this play out as things get worse and worse and worse. But God never gives up on his people. Now, as we look at the world around us, it might not be too hard for us to, to perceive things kind of going the same way, to, to see us in, in a tailspin, kind of in a downward spiral. You know, there are, there are ups and downs, positives and negatives, but sometimes doesn't it seem like things are kind of swirling around the train pretty fast? Sometimes even in our own individual lives, in our own hearts, as, as we look at what's going on within us, we might feel trapped in this same sort of vicious cycle where we, we do what's right in our own eyes. We cry out to God after, after suffering terribly as a result of our sin, and then we receive God's forgiveness, and, and then everything starts all over again. For Israel, as we'll see in the next few weeks, each successive judge that God sends ends up being kind of worse than the one before. And by the end of the book, it's very clear that, that this cycle, that, that this time period of, of the judges is not God's will for Israel. And this is not God's desire for us either. This, this hurts us. This destroys us. God has something better. And so the great hope that the book of Judges offers is that even through all of this, God maintains a relationship with his people, just as our sin as a society or as individual followers of Jesus struggling to follow God. In all of that, God refuses to give up on us. So for Israel in this time period, God's faithfulness is, is shown most clearly in the form of these judges. Uh, now, the word judges is maybe a little bit misleading for us in English. It's a translation of the, the Hebrew word sheftim, uh, which means to judge or to rule. In the context of this book, what it really means is people who are, are military leaders. Uh, this isn't you know, a person in, in the courtroom with the robe and the hammer shouting order in the court. We're not talking about Judge Judy or, or Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, these judges are these, these leaders sent by God 
to rescue his people from foreign oppression. Uh, so actually, maybe a better name, or at least one that, that kind of makes a little more sense to us um, in English, would be the book of, of saviors, the book of, of the people that God sent to, to deliver his people. But as we also mentioned earlier, these judges themselves are not in any way perfect. The book of Judges is, is not so much a memorial to the, the heroes of Israel in days of old as much as it is, it is a demonstration of God's faithful love for his people and his, his merciful and gracious willingness to answer their cries for help and to bring them salvation. So with that introduction in place, uh, let's take a look at the first of the four judges that we'll be examining together in our series, a man by the name of Ehud. But in order to understand the need for Ehud to come along, we first have to talk about someone else with an unusual E name. That name is Eglon. Can you say that? Eglon. Very good. From Judges chapter 3. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Okay, so a few things here. Uh, first, we can already see the A and B of the downward spiral here, right? The, the people abandoning God and, and then they're, they're beaten down. So the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, A, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Because Israel served idols, they were made to serve Eglon. See, kind of the punishment fits the crime here. So Eglon oppresses them for 18 years. Think about that for a minute. Um, 18 years ago was, was the year what? 2000. If you were a senior in high school in Israel at the end of Eglon's reign, you had never known anything but oppression under Eglon. It was a bad situation. We're also told that Eglon and his people took possession of the city of Palms. Does anybody know what city that is? It's Jericho. It's the same city that Israel had marched around and the walls had fallen down. And now... Back in enemy hands. This is hugely significant. God's miraculous work, his great victory for his people, is being undone, unraveled by the people's idolatry. And one more thing on Eglon. If we jump ahead to verse 17, we find out that Eglon was, quote, what? A very fat man. The Bible sometimes just doesn't pull any punches. Eglon has become fat as a result of preying on Israel, consuming everything that their hard work had produced. It was kind of funny. Uh, we were talking about this story in one of our planning meetings, and uh, I won't say who, but, but someone, as Eglon came up, said, wait, Eglon? Now that just sounds like a fat guy. And in fact, um, it literally does, because the name Eglon means calf. And it sounds a lot like the word for round or rotund. We are supposed to notice here that Eglon is a fattened calf 
ready for the slaughter. And that brings us to Ehud. Verse 15, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So here we see the, the C and D of the downward spiral. Israel cries out to the Lord, and he sends them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, whose name means praise. Now, how many lefties do we have here today? Can you raise your hand? No, your left hand. There we go. Yeah, we, we lefties, we're a proud people, aren't we? You can put them down now. Yeah, so I say we lefties because I, I'm sort of left-handed. I do most things right-handed, but, you know, I kick a ball left-footed. Um, I throw left-handed. Sometimes I preach left-handed. just kind of depends. Um, sometimes being a lefty in today's world can be a bit of an advantage, actually. Uh, Rafa Nadal, one of the greatest tennis players in history, is so good partially because he's left-handed. You know, I play tennis with some lefties every now and then, and, and it's, it's hard. It's, it's tricky. Left-handed pitchers are highly sought after in baseball. Sometimes being left-handed can be an advantage. But oftentimes left, being left-handed can also be a disadvantage. You know, I, I hear that it's hard to find scissors that work for you guys, that um, sometimes it's a challenge to button up your shirts in the morning, um, that you get smudges on your hand as you kind of try to write in English. I mean, you should try Hebrew. That would work better for you if you're a lefty. Um, I have a sister who's left-handed, and, and I always had to be careful where I would sit at the kitchen table, because if I sat next to her on this side, it was always, you know, we were elbowing each other the whole meal. It's, it's tough, right? Being left-handed can be tough, and, and we all want to recognize that and, and empathize with you a little bit. Well, in Ehud's day, being left-handed uh, wasn't simply seen as a disadvantage. It was seen as a major deficiency. It was understood to be a serious disability. In fact, the Hebrew, uh, translated by the ESV in most translations as left-handed, um, literally means hindered or restricted or limited in his right hand. That's the literal translation of Ehud, the left-handed man. And this is kind of ironic because Ehud comes from the tribe of Benjamin, which in the Hebrew means son of my right hand. So Ehud lacks the one thing that, that a deliverer really needs to have, a strong right arm of power. Ehud does not fit the mold of, of a warrior savior. Ehud, God's hand-picked deliverer, is defective. But the defect itself becomes God's tool for victory. So uh, go ahead and just kind of Relax for a second, and let me read to you the rest of this account from Judges chapter 3. The people of Israel sent tribute by him, by Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. Cubit's about, you know, forearm length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a, what? Very, not fat, a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. 
And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And uh, this next verse is a good memory verse. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Gross. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for Yahweh has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. The word of the Lord. Okay, first, if that is not the coolest thing that any assassin has ever said in history, I don't know what is. It's like, I have a message from God for you. Ha! I mean, can you imagine? And, and he did. He had a message from God. That message from God was that Eglon's rule of terror was over. God had sent Eglon, but then God had sent Ehud to take Eglon out. And that's just what he does. Uh, Because Ehud was left-handed and maybe had something wrong with his right hand, we don't know for sure what that situation was, but he might not have even been searched at all by Eglon's guards. And and if he was searched, apparently they they don't usually check the right thigh because that's that's just not where you keep a sword. And Eglon certainly didn't suspect anything as, as Ehud started reaching under there. But Ehud had something under his sleeve or his... uh, his pant leg or his, his loin covering or, or whatever it was. But here's the point. Ehud went boldly all alone into the very center of the enemy's camp, right up the gut, literally. Now, it's not recorded for us that, that God explicitly commanded Ehud to go and do this, but either way, it's very clear that God blessed it. Ehud's faith that chose to act, not for his own glory, but for God's, was given success by God. And God's deliverance didn't look like people thought it would, did it? It looked like a man restricted in his right hand who used deception and trickery to take out his enemy. Now, I mentioned earlier that playing a lefty in tennis is a bit tricky because the ball bounces differently. It's deceptive. Well, Ehud rescued Israel in a a tricky, dare I say, left-handed way. In fact, the word sinister, some of you probably already know this, the word sinister comes from the Latin word meaning what? Left or left-handed. But the main thing about Ehud is not his deception, 
but is courage. A courage born out of faith in Yahweh. And in that faith, Ehud, deficient though he was, put Eglon and his glory to shame. As their master lay sprawled out in gruesome death, Eglon's servants, smelling something that suggested maybe he was relieving himself, quote, waited till they were embarrassed. And how embarrassing Eglon's death truly was. What? Eglon, we might say, got egg on his face, right? Well, not egg, and and it wasn't on his face, but um, let's just say Eglon, who had humiliated Israel, dies a humiliating death. All at once, this prodigious man's glory comes to a shameful end. And after 18 years of oppression under Eglon, God gives Israel 80 years of peace under Ehud. This same God, who gave Israel 80 years of peace, has given you eternal peace. See, Ehud was an incredible hero of the faith, but he was nothing compared to Jesus, the one God would send to slay the power of death and hell. As Paul said in our reading from Colossians chapter 2, the good news that Don shared with us today, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. But again, God's hero did not look like people thought he would. Ehud came along and slaughtered the enemy. Jesus came along and, and was slaughtered. Ehud thrust Eglon through and became a hero. But Jesus was, was the one who was thrust through pierced by nails, and run through with a spear. Jesus was the one who died to set his people free. But as we sang together earlier, a cross meant to kill is my victory. Because through his death, Jesus worked deliverance for sinners like you and me, winning our forgiveness and purchasing our peace. Ehud appeared unarmed, and so did Jesus, But they both had something up their sleeves. Ehud used a a small sword hidden on his right thigh. Jesus used his own death. And he caught Satan completely off guard. Ehud went to the most powerful man in the land and rendered him powerless. Jesus bound up the strong man, the devil, and plundered his house. Ehud was, was able to escape from Moab, but Moab could not escape from Ehud. Jesus was able to escape from death. But death could not escape from Jesus. People of God, in Jesus Christ, Yahweh has raised up for us a deliverer. So whether you're right or left-handed or, or a sinner or a saint, and we're both ambidextrous on that one, God has rendered death and hell powerless over you. Jesus is the judge who breaks the cycle, who puts the downward spiral to an end. You are free. And as long as your judge lives, you have peace. And Jesus is alive forever. The Lord has given your enemies into your hand. And so, as the name Ehud says, let us praise God. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we'll be taking a look at Deborah 
a prophetess and the only female judge. Until then, may the peace of God which transcends our understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord, now and forever. Amen.